As Jesus' Sermon on the Mount progresses, he exhorts kingdom citizens regarding practicing their righteousness before men. Matthew 6.1 Previously, Jesus exhorted us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5.6 As well, he warns that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 Now, righteousness is obedience to God and his law. Legally, we are declared righteous when we repent of our sins and believe the gospel. At that moment, we become kingdom citizens. And as kingdom citizens, we are to live out our righteousness in this present world. Our righteousness is to be lived out morally and socially. Morally, we practice righteousness by conforming to God's moral standard, His law. Conforming to the law is not a matter of mere outward conformity but inward conformity. Hence, Jesus taught that the commandments prohibit acts of murder and adultery and the emotions of hate, anger, and lust. Socially, we are to practice righteousness by performing various righteous deeds. In particular, Jesus gives three examples of righteous deeds that should be engaged. Giving to the poor, Matthew 6, 2-4. Praying, Matthew 6, 5-15. And our text for today, and fasting, Matthew 6, 16-18. This triad of righteous deeds is not optional, but compulsory. Notice how Jesus addresses each of these righteous deeds in Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16. When you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast. Jesus did not say if you give to the poor, or if you pray, or if you fast. The term when, hotan, takes for granted that we will engage in these actions. In other words, Jesus expects us to give to the poor, pray, and fast. Now again, in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus lays out a general principle for practicing our righteousness. And that principle is this, do not practice righteous deeds to receive people's attention. Do not do it to receive their applause. Do not do it to receive their adulation. Again, the principle, do not practice righteous deeds to receive people's attention, applause, or adulation. To that end, Jesus admonishes us to do our giving in secret and private. And now in Matthew 6, 5-15, Jesus addresses the second righteous deed, the issue of proper prayer and the kingdom citizen. Proper prayer and the kingdom citizen. Let's begin with verses 5-8. through 8. You see, Jesus began addressing this issue of proper prayer in the kingdom citizen by enunciating the principles of proper prayer. The principles of proper prayer, verses 5 through 8. Again, we'll notice that phrase, when you pray. That term, when, hotan, takes for granted that we are praying. Jesus knows nothing of believers who do not pray. Indeed, a non-praying believer is a contradiction of terms. To refer to someone as a non-praying believer is like saying that they are, that they are a non-believing believer. Now let's begin with principle number one, and we find that in verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Principle one, proper prayer should not be done for praise. Proper prayer should not be done for praise. Jesus says you are not to be like the hypocrites. Here he sets forth that first principle of proper prayer. Proper prayer should not be done for praise. 
Now, in first century Greco-Roman culture, a hypocrite acted in the theaters. As previously stated in our last sermon, there is no wrongdoing or deception on the actor's part because the audience knows that he or she is playing a part. However, Jesus commonly used the term hypocrite or hypocrites to refer to the Pharisees. And in doing so, he sets forth a twofold accusation. First, Jesus accuses them of acting religious. And second, he accuses them of acting religious to garner the attention, applause, and adulation of people. Do not be like the hypocrites. Now, lest anyone doubt the veracity of Jesus' accusation, he proves the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He says they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. To clarify, Jesus is not, not condemning prayer in the synagogue nor on the street corner. Nor is he condemning praying while standing. Praying while standing, in fact, was customary practice amongst the Jews. Instead, what Jesus is condemning is their motivation for praying, that they may be seen by men. As well, notice that they love to be seen by men. The verb love, phileo, denotes an affection or fondness for something. Grammatically, when the verb phileo, or love, is followed by an infinitive, such as to stand and pray, it implies a deep desire. In other words, these Pharisees bring attention to their prayers because they have a deep desire for attention, applause, and adulation. They don't pray because they love God. They love to pray because it strokes their ego. Remember, folks, bringing attention to your righteous deeds for the praise of others is the persistent sin of pharisaicalism. John 12, 43, they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Folks, how often have you fallen into the trap of pharisaicalism? Friends, if you go to church not to worship God, but to draw attention to yourselves, then you are a Pharisee. When you pray or praise God in a manner that draws attention to yourself, you could be a Pharisee. Now, again, we have to certainly determine the motivation. Determining a person's motivation is critical. See, someone may inadvertently or unwittingly bring attention to themselves. But if their motivation is to bring attention to themselves, they are a hypocrite. Now, you say, well, Pastor, how do we possibly determine their motivation? Is there a way to determine their motivation? The answer is yes, by addressing the issue. How the person responds or reacts when the issue is addressed will speak volumes. If they respond with humility, if they respond with understanding, they were simply aloof to how they were perceived. However, they are hypocrites if they react with Christianese jargon and try to defend themselves. And so, as you listen, challenge yourself. Look at your motivation. Why do you do what you do in church? And again, maybe you didn't realize you were bringing attention to yourself. But if you're doing it because you want attention, and that takes an honest evaluation, then you need to confess it before the Lord and admit before Him you're being a hypocrite. You're being a Pharisee. Confess that sin. Get right with God. See, to those who desire attention, applause, and adulation, Jesus says they have the reward in full. That term reward, misthos, refers to a credit or a benefit. The verb full, apeko, 
is a business term used in transactions to convey that a receipt has been given for payment received in full. Jesus' point is that those seeking people's praise are all the reward or credit they will get. There is no future reward, there is no heavenly profit or benefit owed to somebody's supposed righteous deed. And so principle number one, proper prayer should not be done for praise. Next, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray. Here he sets forth the second principle of proper prayer. Principle number two, proper prayer should be done in private. Proper prayer should be done in private. You see, Jesus employs a form of rhetoric here known as ap arches acratilius, or from beginning to end. By employing this rhetorical tactic, Jesus paints a verbal picture. That picture looks like this. Step one, go into room. Step two, close the door. Step three, pray. Now note the phrase, when you pray. Again, when takes for granted that you're praying. Instead of looking for the most visible location when praying, go into your inner room. This inner room, timion, refers to a storehouse or closet. Now, typical Jewish homes were comprised of only one or two rooms. And furthermore, the only room with a door was the closet. Now, once in the closet, Jesus says, close the door and pray. In other words, by closing the door, you are blocking out any outside distractions that would inhibit your prayer. Praying in a closet behind closed doors also prohibits you from drawing attention to your prayers. Also, praying in a closed closet depicts a scene where you are shut in alone with God. Now, Jesus employs hyperbole about praying in a closet to drive home the inerrant temptation that comes with praying in public, namely, to draw attention to yourself. If you succumb to the temptation and draw attention to yourself with prayer, you're forfeiting any heavenly reward. So in order to avoid temptation, Jesus says, go someplace secluded and pray. An example he followed. Matthew 14, 23, he went up to a mountain by himself, and it was evening, and he was there alone to pray. Mark 1, 35, early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Now again, Jesus is not condemning public praying. Jesus is not condemning public praying. The early church often held times of public prayer. Had God been displeased with their public prayer, he would have condemned the church for praying in such a manner. Nonetheless, folks, we have to guard against the temptation to draw attention to ourselves in public prayer settings. And furthermore, attention should also be placed upon whom prayer is to be offered. Jesus says, pray to your Father who is in secret. Prayer is to be made to God the Father. The phrase who is in secret implies that God is in a secret place. That place is where he dwells, heaven. That prayer is offered in secret to God, who is in his secret place, denotes his desire for intimacy with his people. And furthermore, Jesus confirms that the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward those who pray in secret. As in Matthew 6, 4, the verb reward is not mythos. Instead, he uses the verb epitome, meaning repay or restore. And the use of the future tense of reward, epididymi, guarantees that those who pray in secret will be repaid.
Now, there's an intriguing wordplay in use here. That term, inner room, timion, refers to a closet or a storehouse. Well, a storehouse is a place where treasures are kept. In other words, when you pray privately in your storehouses, God will reward or repay you with heavenly treasures. And so, principle one, proper prayer should not be done for praise. And now, principle number two, proper prayer should be private. Proper prayer should be private. Now, let's continue with Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now note again, Jesus says, when you are praying. When still denotes that expectation that you are praying. And as you pray, Jesus commands, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Now the Gentiles here is a reference for pagans. Here Jesus sets forth the third principle for proper prayer. Prayer must be distinct from pagan prayer. Again, proper prayer must be distinct from pagan prayer. Now meaningless repetition, one word, botologio, has several meanings. First, it means to babble the exact words over and over. And second, it means to speak for a long time. And both definitions fit pagan prayers. See, pagan prayers were known for using repetitious words and mechanical formulaic phrases. For two hours, the pagan worshipers of Ephesus chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Acts 19.34. Two hours they chanted that to no avail. As Jesus explains, they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Friends, rest assured, neither repetitive prayers nor mechanical formulaic prayers will pressure God into answering. Repetitious words and mechanical formulaic phrases may sound God-honoring, but often they do not represent a genuine heart devoted to God as explained by Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, 13, the prophet says that this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. See, friends, mere recitation of prayers is meaningless because they're not genuinely heartfelt. They're merely compliance to the teachings and traditions of people. And furthermore, God despises mechanical incantations. Consider a few examples of meaningless repetition within Christianity at large. Roman Catholics count beads while repetitiously reciting the Paternosters, i.e. the Lord's Prayer, and the Ave Marias in order to move God to answer or absolve them of their sins. In some Protestant churches, such as the Anglican Church, meaningless repetition is seen in the liturgical form of worship. Much of their service is built around the recitation of formulaic prayers written by people of a bygone era. In both of these examples, the people approach God with lip service based on tradition learned by rote. And friends, let me also say this, that it is possible for you to invoke meaningless repetition in your daily prayers. How often do you end your prayers with the traditional phraseology, in Jesus' name? Now certainly, prayers to God the Father are to be offered in His name. John 14, 13 to 14, 15, 16, and 16, 23 make that clear that prayer is to be offered in Jesus' name. However, 
that does not mean tacking on a ritualistic, repetitious phrase at the end of your prayer. Praying in Jesus' name acknowledges that our access to his Father comes through him, the Son. You see, the point, friend, is that in prayer, we acknowledge that we are approaching God through the Son, be it at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the prayer. In obedience to Jesus' command to avoid meaningless repetition, I would challenge you to stretch yourselves and invoke other ways of closing your prayer. To this end, Jesus commands, do not be like them. Kingdom citizens, our prayers must be different than that of the pagans. We are not to invoke repetitious words nor mechanical formulaic phrases in an attempt to manipulate God into hearing or answering us. As Jesus explains, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, folks, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. And all the meaningless repetition, all the babble, is not going to inform God of your needs any better. He already knows for what you pray. Now this brings up a question. If God already knows, then why do we pray? We pray out of obedience. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayers and prepetition, pray at all times in the Spirit. We pray because it is the means of entering God's presence and communing with Him. Hebrews 4.16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We pray because it's the means God has established to accomplish His will. Jeremiah 33.3, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you did not know. Now, one further issue must be addressed. The admonishment to avoid meaningless repetition does not, and listen carefully, it does not prohibit persistence in prayer. For example, Jesus repeatedly petitioned God, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 38. Regarding an affliction, Paul said, I've implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Additionally, in the parable of the unjust judge, in Luke 18, 1-8, Jesus used the illustration of a widow who petitioned the judge persistently and daily to teach that believers ought to pray and not lose heart. Luke 18, 1. And so we must remember that proper prayer must be distinct from pagan prayer. Now let's just briefly review the three principles. Principle one, proper prayer should not be done for praise. Principle two, proper prayer should be done in private. And number three, principle number three, proper prayer must be distinct from pagan prayer. Now having set forth the principles of proper prayer, Jesus now, in verses 9 to 15, explains the practice of proper prayer. The practice of proper prayer. Verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Again, the practice of proper prayer. The practice of proper prayer. Now, this prayer is traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. However, 
I believe it would be better titled the Lord's model for prayer. The Lord's model for prayer. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, pray then in this way. In other words, he provides this prayer to us as a model, as a pattern, as an outline for how to pray. Now, Jesus' previous prohibition against meaningless repetition underscores that he never intended this model prayer to be repeated like a mantra. Also, the brevity of this prayer emphasizes Jesus' earlier warning about using wordy or lengthy prayers in an attempt to move God. God is more interested in the motive behind your prayer rather than the vocabulary or length of your prayer. Now, the Lord's model for prayer contains two sets of three petitions. These two sets stress the importance that prayer should always place God's glory first and then our gratification. Notice the prayer begins with your name, your kingdom, your will. And it is only after placing God's concerns first that we can approach Him with our needs. Give us, forgive us, do not lead us. Friends, we need to remember that God's glory must always trump our personal gratification. And if we include the benediction, then proper prayer begins and ends with God's glory. Now, imitating the Lord's model for prayer means that our prayer should contain seven elements. There should be seven parts to our prayer. First, prayer must contain our relational element, a relational element our Father who is in heaven. Now in the Old Testament, Israel recognized God as their Father who has brought them, made them, and established them. Deuteronomy 32 verse 6. See, He is not any kind of Father. He is a compassionate Father. Psalm 103 13. Just as a Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Now because God adopted us into His family, he says, you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, we pray, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. Galatians 4.6, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As our Father, God is the giver of life, provider, and protector of believers. In Jewish culture, children were entirely dependent upon their fathers. Fathers were viewed as providers and examples for their children. Hence, by referring to God as our Father, we are acknowledging dependence upon Him and committing to follow His example. Proper prayer must then contain a relational element. A relational element. Our Father implies that prayer is addressed only to God the Father. Second, prayer must contain a reverential element. Hallowed be your name. In Semitic culture, a name expresses the nature of an individual. A name is more than just a name. God's name is a declaration of who He is and what He has done. And as such, God's name or nature is to be hollowed, hagiazo, or treated as holy. Holy means that God is separate from everything else and as such is morally pure and sinless. And to treat His name or nature as holy is to elevate Him above all else. And such an admonition is given as a warning against self-serving prayers. Now, while God's name or nature is already holy, we nonetheless pray that His name and nature will be treated as holy. To pray for God's name and nature to be treated as holy is to acknowledge a desire to make it known. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Proper prayer 
must contain a reverential element. And so, believer, when praying, acknowledge who God is and what he has done. Pray for God to make his name known in the world. Pray that God's name and nature will be honored. Third, proper prayer must contain a submissive element. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the term kingdom, basileia, does not necessarily refer to a geographical locale. When Jesus declared, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36, he revealed that his kingdom was not geographically located on planet earth. Jesus also meant that unlike the world's kingdoms, his is characterized by holiness and righteousness. Now praying for God's kingdom to come, erkamai, is to pray for its arrival. The verb come is an aorist act of imperative indicating an instantaneous coming like lightning. Indeed, Jesus declared, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be, Matthew twenty four twenty seven. Hence, praying for his kingdom to come is to pray for the hastening of Jesus' return. And when he returns, he will establish his kingdom upon earth and reign in holiness and righteousness. Additionally, to pray for his kingdom to come implies that you're praying and prepared to live as a kingdom citizen. Hence the second part of the submissive element, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, Thalema, refers to his gracious plans. Your will be done as a confession to submit to God's plans and to serve his appointed king, Jesus the Messiah. On earth as it is in heaven means that we submit our will to God's will. As David declared in Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in, within my heart. You see, doing God's will, friend, ought to be your delight. It ought to be the desire of your heart. But note that desiring to do God's will requires an inward commitment to obey His law. Are you ready to do that? No one should wonder what God's will is, by the way, because He's already revealed His will in His law. And so prayer must contain a submissive element. I challenge you to pray for His return. Pray for His will to be done. And pray for our willingness to do his will. Fourth, prayer must contain a dependent element. Prayer must contain a dependent element. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, bread is not a reference to physical bread, but the necessities of life. In the words of Martin Luther, daily bread is a symbol for everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, and peace. Now, I'd like you to note that this element of prayer is for necessities not luxuries. God will provide your daily necessities, but he is not on the hook to provide for your personal luxuries. Now, praying for the provision of your daily needs is an acknowledgement of dependence upon God. Asking God to provide your daily needs does not negate the command to work to provide for those necessities. Instead, it's a confession of dependence upon God for those needs. It's also acknowledging that the ability to work to meet your needs is an act of God's grace. Now that term daily, epousius, refers to the current day or the following day. Now depending upon the time of day in which you're praying for your needs, the idea of daily may vary. Notwithstanding, the point is that we are to live one day at a time. You know, too often we are gripped by anxiety about some potential future need. Does such anxiety suggest not trusting God to provide for your daily needs? Jesus will address this issue later in Matthew 6, 25-34. Again, prayer must contain a dependent element. Pray for daily necessities. Acknowledge dependency upon God's grace. 
And folks, remember, prayer is the answer to anxiety regarding daily needs. Fifth, prayer must contain a penitent element. A penitent element. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, in the Lucan record of the Lord's model for prayer, the term debts, ophelima, is replaced by sins, implying that these debts are spiritual and result from sins committed. Because of sin, we owe a debt to God. But Christ's sacrificial death paid that debt in full. Now, because Christ paid the sin debt, as sinners, we can come to God, repent of our sins, and find forgiveness. The term forgive, aphemi, means to dismiss charges, pardon, or cancel a debt. The forgiveness granted to sinners is known as judicial forgiveness. And though redeemed from sin, we still struggle with sin. Each time we as a believer sins, that father-child relationship is broken. In order to restore that relationship, parental forgiveness is needed. However, parental forgiveness is only dispensed in response to repentance or confession. As the Apostle John stated, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. No believer need not fear that God will not forgive them. As Nehemiah wrote, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. However, there's a caveat. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, God dispenses forgiveness to sinning believers to the degree that we forgive those who sinned against us. As the old saying goes, those who have been forgiven much are expected to forgive much. Now there was such a reaction to this truth that Jesus further clarified his point in Matthew 6, 14-15. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This clarification sets the premise for Paul's admonition to the Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So prayer must contain a penitent element. Pray for forgiveness of sins. Pray for a restoration with God the Father. And pray for divine enablement to forgive others. Sixth, prayer must contain a protective element. A protective element. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That verb lead, aspiro, means to cause someone to experience something. The temptation, perismas, refers to a temptation to sin or a trial. Now, is Jesus claiming that God causes us to experience a temptation to sin? In short, no. God is not causing anyone to be tempted. First, temptations do not come from God. Because James 1.13 states, God cannot be tempted by evil. And because God is free of evil, James 1.13 also states, He himself does not tempt anyone. However, God may allow temptation to come upon us, such as in the case of Job. But God also promises in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that he is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape so that we can bear it or endure it. Second, the verb lead, lead us not to temptation, is in the subjunctive mood. Now when the subjunctive mood here functions as a prohibitive, when it is joined by the negative particle not, and a second-person plural pronoun such as us. As such, it is not a case of God leading into temptation, but God allowing the temptation. Remember, Matthew recorded Jesus' words in Greek, but Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And so Matthew would have used the Greek subjunctive to translate what's known as the Aramaic permissive hiffle verb. 
Hence, the intent of Jesus' statement is, do not allow us to be tempted. Again, God does not lead anyone to be tempted, but he does allow temptation. And Jesus is encouraging us to pray that God would keep them from such temptation. However, if in his infinite wisdom, God allows the temptation, then pray, but deliver us from evil. That verb deliver, ruamai, means to rescue or free from harm. The term evil, paneros, is articular, meaning it has a definite article. It would be better translated as the evil one, a Matthean title for Satan. Hence, Jesus says that we are to pray to God to rescue us from harm inflicted by Satan. To put it another way, rescue us from the wiles of the devil, such as temptations to sin. So prayer must contain a protective element. Pray that God would not allow Satan to tempt you, but if he does allow it, then pray that God would rescue you from the temptation. Seventh and final, prayer must contain a doxological element. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, there's some debate about whether the doxology was initially included in the text. The arguments made that some earlier manuscripts do not include this statement. However, Jewish prayers typically close with the doxology. Therefore, it would be unusual and highly suspect for Jesus not to close this prayer with a doxological element. Now, just as prayer begins by focusing on God, prayer should end similarly. The kingdom, the basileia, refers to the domain ruled by God as king. Power, dunamis, speaks of God's omnipotence or almighty energy, and glory refers to God's majesty. God's kingdom, omnipotence, and majesty are forever or eternal. And so the prayer ends with one word, amen. Amen, or so be it, means that God is faithful when added to prayer. And so prayer must end with a doxological element. Pray for God to be glorified. Praise God for who he is and what he has done. Pray believing that God is faithful and will answer proper prayer. You know, friends, too often people do not pray because they're disillusioned by the lack of answers to their prayers. Maybe that's even you. Maybe you haven't prayed in a long time because you're disillusioned. You didn't get the answer you wanted. My friend, if you're not praying due to a lack of answers, I want you to consider why your prayer is not being answered. See, a lack of an answer may be related to your motivation for prayer. When you're focused your prayer upon yourself, when you're doing it for the applause of people, well, then you've forfeited any answer to your prayer from God. Another reason for the lack of answers may be you're praying in the wrong way. As Jesus shows with this model prayer, there's a right and a wrong way to pray. Prayer must begin with a focus on God's glory and end the same way. Also, prayer is submission to God's kingship and will. Only after putting God first and submitting to Him can we expect God to answer our prayers. And finally, Jesus reveals that an unforgiving spirit hinders some prayers. Friend, if you're refusing to forgive someone who's repentant, don't expect God to answer your prayer, particularly your prayer of repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a faithful God. And we come to you because of your son's shed blood. We seek to do your will, in particular, that we might pray according to the principles laid out here in Matthew 6. Lord, we confess that we need your help. In our flesh, our prayers are often self-serving. As well, Lord, we thank you for forgiving us and pray that you would move our hearts to forgive those who have wronged us. Father, as we submit to you, rescue us from Satan's wiles. And Father, as the all-knowing, all-powerful one to whom we pray, we say, Amen.